All right, well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you guys again. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we say this all the time, but they're at the ends of the rows. Um, you can grab one, keep that. That's our gift to you. Here, we want to open up God's Word every week and just walk through it. Um, I've jokingly said this, but I mean it. Like, I don't think I'm smart enough to tell you anything revolutionary, so I just want to tell you what's in God's Word. So Acts chapter 4, we're going to continue in this series today. All right, as you turn there, uh, hey, you know, sometimes... And I don't know if you know this is true for your life, but for me, I definitely know it's true. Sometimes God just, like, sets a direction or a vision for your life that it becomes unmistakable to you, right? Like, like you just kind of feel it, and you know that there's something happening. Honestly, this is one of those messages for us as a church that I believe that God has been setting this direction um, for us. And I want to explain to you through Acts chapter 4 um, what God's intention is, not only for your life, but for our church. So, over the summer, our elder team, we have, we have a group of elders, we, we met together and we went on a little retreat in North Carolina for a few days to, to simply ask God this question. Like, God, what kind of church do you want our young one-year-old church plant to be? Like, who are we and what do we want us to be? There, there was a phrase that we came away with, and if you write things down, this is, this is the phrase. We want to be an outwardly focused family. Not all the words in this phrase are really important. For us, we want to be a family. Like, we felt like the very first year of our existence, that's what we became, a hospitable family that loved one another really, really well. You know, in a church, though, the problem with stopping there with just being a family is you become a small group, right? You, you stop being intentional with God's mission, and God's mission is to reach people. So what we said is, okay, not only do we want to be a family, but this year we want to be an outwardly focused family. We believe that God was saying that this is the direction that our young church needed to go. That we needed to be intentional and passionate about the gospel, and we need to be intentional and passionate about one another. So in our planning for this year, if you haven't noticed yet, since August till now, every message has been intentional, and all of these messages have been with the intentionality of beginning to cultivate in our church this idea of evangelism right? That's why we're going through the book of Acts. It's when the very first church was created, and the very first church, all they did was share the gospel and spread the gospel. What I want to show you today is not only is this idea of being an outwardly focused family our idea, I believe that this is God's heart for his church. Honestly, I believe that God's church is his plan A, and the primary plan that God has for spreading the good news of the gospel all the way across the ends of the earth is you. If you think about it, it took 11, like, I don't really want to rag on them that much, but uneducated bozos that took this word, the gospel, and they, they were transformed by it. And these 11 men spread the gospel so that thousands of years later, billions of people have come to faith. Honestly, that is God's plan, to take ordinary people like you and I and to transform and transfix our hearts on him and then take that message and spread it across the ends of the earth. So before we begin, before we dive into Acts chapter 4, I, I want to put a bold, if you will, um, prayer that I've been putting ahead of God for like the last six months, and I, I still think it's true. So my bold prayer, and I told this at our family um, member night on Wednesday, is my bold prayer is that we would have 200 people worshiping in this room by January. Now, I, I often say this, and, and I mean this, our primary goal isn't that we would have more people. You, you get that, right? Our primary goal is that all of us would be sharing the faith that we have. Our primary goal is that all of us would be engaged in the mission of God. And I believe that the result of that is that more people would come to faith. And, and honestly, I think it's going to take two things. So really quickly, just two simple things and we'll get there. Um, number one is this, is we actually have to come. 
Um, the national average, according to, I think it was the Barna Group, recently said that the national average for church-going Christians, these are committed believers, right now in America is 1.6 times a month. And I can just be honest, we're not, we're not too much better. Our average attendance on a weekend right now sits around 130 people, and I just believe if we actually just all showed up at the same time, you'd be astounded at how many people would be here. That's number one. We have to be committed to being here. And I shared this on Wednesday with our people, but I, I really believe this, is that God's vehicle for advancing the, the mission of God across the world is us gathered together because we get to demonstrate something to a watching world that the world has never seen before, and that's our unity in our diversity. Meaning none of us look alike, none of us have anything in common, right? But we come together because we have a commonality, and that's our love for Jesus. So that's number one. Number two is this. We have to take sharing the gospel seriously. L listen, I, I want to make this really clear, and you're going to see this today, but the way that we have the greatest impact on this city is when we live with intentionality in the city and when we love Jesus enough to tell people about him. Here's my here, here's my conclusion, if you will, here's my challenge, is if we would show up and if we would love Jesus deeply and share our faith with others, listen, I believe that you would see God do something absolutely radical in this city. I think you'd see him transform this city for his glory. And I want to show you that today, Acts chapter 4. Here's what you're going to see, is that God's power, if you will, the power that God uses to grow his church is when his people boldly share their faith. You ready? Acts 4 verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. All right, just a little recap. If you weren't here last week, last week in Acts chapter 3, what you see is the first part of this story where Peter and John had just healed a lame man, a paralyzed man, a guy who had literally been sitting outside of the temple for years begging for money. But what did they tell them? They say, hey, we don't have money, but what we do have is we have Jesus. And you see this guy get healed, and he walks into the temple, and everybody's kind of astounded by this. They don't know what to do. And what you see is that Peter and John take the opportunity to not tell them, like, hey, look at this miracle, but they tell them about Jesus. Now, one thing I want you to notice, and this is going to be really important in the book of Acts, is that every single time that people preach the gospel, something happens. Opposition. Literally, every single time that they share the gospel, they face persecution. See, you're going to notice this every time. Every time people share the gospel, listen, two things actually happen. They face persecution, and then people come to faith. What you see here in Acts chapter 4 is it says 5,000 men. Now, it's not just men. They normally just counted households, which means that you could have almost doubled or tripled this number of people came to faith because they preached the gospel. And that's how it works. There are normally two things that happen. Number one is when you preach the gospel, there's opposition. Not everybody is going to be happy that you're telling them about Jesus. Now, what I find funny, though, is the people that normally get mad about this, the people that normally get mad that you're sharing your faith, are the religious people. You ever notice this? Who are the people that get mad in this scripture? It's not the non-Christians. They actually are there. They're ready to hear the gospel, and they're intrigued. It's the religious people that do that. They're the ones that get mad. And here's the other thing that you find is when you share the gospel, people come to faith. Guys, I've said this a lot, but y'all, the system is rigged. I, I love this passage. Jesus promises in Matthew 16 that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a promise. But then also, at Luke chapter 10, I, I share this a lot, but Luke chapter 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's sending them out to share the gospel, and listen to what he says. He says, the harvest 
is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into the harvest. Now, here's what the harvest is. The harvest, according to the Bible, is non-Christians. Laborers are Christians. They need to go share the gospel. If you really read that correctly, he's not saying that we have a lack of non-Christians that are ready to come to faith. Here's who he's saying the problem is. Us. Right? The harvest Non-Christians, they're plentiful and they're ready. The problem is laborers. So pray that God would send more laborers into the harvest. Honestly, if we read that correctly, listen to me, Jesus' indictment is not that people aren't ready to come to faith. Jesus' indictment is that we're not sharing the gospel. And according to, again, most church research, that's true. Most believing Christians, according to research, I think it's something like 99% of us have never shared the gospel ever, ever. See, I'm convinced I'm convinced that what we need is not more training. We need more boldness. We need more boldness in the face of opposition, right? Seriously, sometimes I wonder what it would look like if we had an urgency and a boldness that the apostles had. In a moment of time, 5,000 people came to faith because these brothers cared so much about Jesus. And listen to me, they knew he was real. They believed he was real. And they believed that people's lives were at stake. And that's how it normally works. When God's people are bold and urgent in sharing the faith, people come to faith. And, and have you ever noticed, I don't know if you're anything like me, but we're all pretty nosy people. You ever notice that? Like there's a sidebar conversation coming on here and I'm like trying to listen in, trying to hear, right? This, this happens all the time. I, mean, I remember last week, my family, we went on vacation together and we went down to Florida to the beach and, um, and we're driving back and we're in this little golf cart together and we see there's an accident. Now, what ends up happening in an accident? Everybody stops, everybody looks, and nobody pays attention to anything else. Like, seriously, that's what was happening in our neighborhood where, like, you have this incredible pool where kids are playing. Like, these kids are running rampant, and parents are like, dude, I mean, that's how our life works. Why does that matter? Because, listen, sometimes you don't realize the audience that you have. I remember, again, a few years ago, I'm on a subway in New York City, and um, I'm, I'm sitting down, and I hear this guy telling me about how he's about to go to the mosque. So I start a conversation with him. We start talking about Jesus. And, and the next thing you know, it, he invited me to debate his imam at his mosque later on that day. And I, when you get that invitation, you go, right? So I get on the subway, and me and Muhammad, um, we go to the mosque, and I'm debating with this imam. Like, it's me and this guy in the mosque talking about Christianity. And here's what I noticed really quickly. A crowd started forming. People were listening. It it didn't take me long to realize that I actually wasn't talking to the imam. He didn't care what I thought. He was convinced. Here's who I was talking to. Everybody else around him, right? As I'm talking, so I started shifting my conversation from this idea of like apologetics, trying to prove him wrong, to sharing the gospel and the love and the generosity of Jesus. You see, this is what happens, right? When you share, listen, there's a crowd. People listen. When your lives look different, when you are intentional with hospitality with your neighbors and your coworkers, I promise you, maybe, just maybe, people around are paying attention and you don't even know what God is doing. That's how God works. So what does all this mean? Well, I I think it means that, listen, if we want to see an explosion of the gospel in our city, we really have to do two things. Two things. Number one, we have to have an urgency for the gospel. Right? Guys, I got to just say this. There are hurting people in our city. There are people that are living hopeless lives. Just be honest with you. I meet them every single day. They are looking for hope in all the wrong places. All they need is the gospel. You are the joy that they're looking for. 
okay? People will live, and it's not just our city, it's all over the world. People will live their entire lives. I don't, I don't know if you know this. People will be born, they'll live, and they'll die, and they'll never, ever, ever hear the name of Jesus. And it's not just like in the farthest places on earth. You, you, if you were at member night, you heard this when Collier and Claire came up and told us that they went to New York City last year on a mission trip with us, and listen to what they said. They said that they were talking to people in Queens who had never heard the name of Jesus, ever. So don't assume that in our city, where I think it's something like 25% of our, India, our city is Indian, like the people here have heard the gospel. But you know what the difference between here and over there is? We don't have unreached people groups here because you're here. You are God's hope. You are God's game plan. So I don't know about you, but I, I just, guys, I, I just don't think it's acceptable. I really don't. I don't think that it's acceptable that people will live their entire lives without ever knowing the joy of Jesus, and I have it, and I know it. I don't want to wait for someone else to do it. I really don't. I don't, I, I don't want to be that guy that says somebody else would do it. Do you know, again, looking back at Acts chapter 3, do you know what the difference between Peter and John and everybody else was? They stopped. They stopped. I, I love how David Platt said it last week. Look at, write this down if you missed it last week. Those who are most effective at reaching many are those who are most passionate about reaching the one. You see, Peter and John wasn't worried about going and standing in front of 10,000 people and proclaiming the gospel. They just cared about the person right in front of them. And a crowd was watching. People were paying attention. And thousands of people came to faith. What would it look like if you and I took the gospel seriously and we understood and we believed with all of our heart that Jesus really is who he said that he is and people really are going to a Christless eternity unless we tell them and we simply stopped and loved the people that were right in front of us? I'll tell you what would happen. People would come to faith. See, if you want to see the world changed, you have to have a burning hot desperation for people. You have to love people like Jesus did. I, again, I, I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't know the gospel and know the implications of the gospel and continue to live the way that I do. There's an urgency, guys. There's an urgency in our own city. Like, you don't know what tomorrow will look like. You don't know what tomorrow will look like for your own life. And I hate to be that guy, but it's so true. Number two, listen to me, you have to share the gospel. You have to share the gospel. I know that's simple, but I want to give you a really practical way of doing that. And then next week, we're going to give you another really practical way. But here's how I call it. I say it's my story wrapped in Jesus' story. It's simply your testimony. All of us have a story. Some of your stories are quite boring, and praise God for that. I'll just be honest with you. Mine, mine's like this crazy story that we celebrate in churches. Can I just tell you really quickly, sidebar, my kids, I hope that they have the worst testimony ever. Like, don't, don't be upset about that. I hope my daughter looks at me one day and she's like, I don't know when I became a Christian because you just always loved Jesus. And you told me about him from the moment I can remember, I've always loved Jesus. That's awesome. Tell people that. Maybe you're like me and you've got a jacked up story. Here's all it means. Look, your story wrapped in Jesus is what was your life like before Christ? It's simple. Tell people what your life was like before Christ. What is your life like now that you're a Christian? How did that happen? It's really that simple. Here's the gospel. Jesus in my place. We say it all the time. Jesus lived the life I could never live, died the death I deserve to die, rose from the dead, and united me back to himself. And you, you know what that does? That changes everything about me. I'm no longer that because Jesus died in my place and he gave me a new identity and now I have joy. That's simple. All you have to do is share the gospel. All right, back to the text. Let me show you this. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and their elders and their scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anus, which is a really unfortunate name, but that is how you pronounce it, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high priestly family. 
And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Here goes Peter. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. One of the things I want you to notice is Peter's boldness, right? I told you this last week, but you got to think, like, John's like, bro, like, those are the guys that killed Jesus. You you might want to bring it down a few notches. (laughs) You're going to get us killed, dude. And Peter's over here throwing truth bombs. No, if you really want to know what happened, you remember that dude that you killed, he's no longer dead. He rose from the dead, and that's the guy that healed him. You asked, I just told you. Right? You, you remember this. This is the same Peter that a few weeks ago was being chased out by a middle school girl, and he's over here boldly sharing who Jesus is. Do you know how? Do you know how? Remember verse 8. I, I told you this a few weeks ago, but look at this. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, remember this. A few weeks ago, whenever we talked about this controversial topic called speaking in tongues, one of the things we told you was speaking in tongues really is not just, it's not, according to the Bible, uttering some language nobody knows. No, it's when God fills you in a supernatural way with the Spirit of God inside of you so that you can proclaim the gospel in the midst of, uh, most of the time, opposition to a people who have never heard it in their language. Here's what happens over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts. When there's persecution, God gives you boldness to share the gospel. You see this, they're they're talking to the people that crucified Jesus, and Peter gets boldness because he's filled with the Spirit, right? Here's why this is good news. Listen, if you're ever scared to tell tell people about Jesus, and look, that's totally normal. I don't know why it's normal, but it's normal. Jesus will never leave you without giving you his words and the power of the Spirit in the midst of you doing that every single time. You see this all the time in the book of Acts. All you have to do is ask, right? Did you notice the question that they asked him, by the way? Look at this again, verse 7. And they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? You see that? You're going to see this theme over and over and over again, this name of Jesus thing that matters so much. You ever notice this? You ever notice that people don't really care when you talk about God? Right? You can pray to God, you can do anything to God, but the moment you drop the Jesus word, People get really, really offended. You ever wonder why? Here's why. Because the claims of Jesus and the apostles are super, super exclusive. Think about it. This is what Jesus says. Right? Jesus has claimed that he is the only way to heaven. It's pretty narrow. Honestly, in a society that's really, really tolerant, it's pretty intolerant. But I love, I love the way Vody Bauckham, he's a pastor and a professor, um, a seminary professor at the, the seminary I went to. And listen to what he says. And this is big words, so you got to keep up with me. If religious relativism is true and held up, we cannot tolerate the Christian God who is intolerant. Makes sense. God could not be tolerant and continue to be God. Then he would be tolerant of injustice, and then he would be unrighteous. Who is more tolerant? Listen to this. The doctor who tolerates cancer or the doctor that takes radical measures to rid you of it? I love that picture. I love that picture. Jesus is jealous for his name. He is. 
right? The name of Jesus is exclusive. But can I, can I tell you, listen, that all claims are exclusive claims. Like, uh, just really quickly, let me just be a philosopher for just a second. No matter what you do, you're, you're not really as tolerant as you think. Think about the most tolerant claim ever. All religions lead to Jesus. All religions lead to God. All of them. They're all essentially the same. Pretty tolerant, right? Except for those who don't believe that, right? No matter what, by the way, every single religion that I know of doesn't believe that. The internal claims of all religions believe that they're exclusive. Islam and Christianity don't agree with one another. Mormonism, Christianity don't agree with, like you, you start putting them side by side, the internal claims of each of this will tell you that the each one is wrong. So then you get somebody that comes along and says, hey, by the way, I know better than all of you guys who have studied all this stuff, and all of you are wrong because it all leads to the same place. And that sounds really tolerant on the surface, but did you know that that is just as intolerant of a view as any of the other ones because you've excluded people who don't agree with you, right? Anyway, notice this. The religious leaders of their day, they're not mad at the fact that they healed somebody. What are they mad at? They're mad at the fact that they did it in Jesus' name. The name of Jesus is what actually matters to them. Let me show you what I mean, okay? Look at verse 12. Listen to what Peter says. And there is salvation in no one else, right? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Listen, this is a big deal. And I know this isn't really popular, but it's biblical. There is no other way to God except through Jesus. And logically, that should make sense to you, right? If you think about what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's about to be crucified, what does he do? He looks to God and he says, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, radio silence. Jesus goes willfully. Here's the question. If there was another way, why did Jesus die? Don't you think that that would make God really cruel? Right? If, there was a, if God was like, well, you know, I know, like I, I had you brutally beaten, killed, and crucified on a cross, but... I'm just going to make an exception over here. No, that's not the way it works. Here's the reality. And I want to say this as humbly as possible. Apart from Christ, you are in massive trouble. Apart from Christ, you will enter into an eternity separated from God. You know that, right? This is why the message is so urgent. This is why it matters. Jesus has already paid the punishment. He's satisfied the righteous requirements of the law so that you can stand before God. And when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin and all the things you've done wrong. What does he see? He sees Christ's righteousness in you because God, being a just God, has already paid the penalty that none of us could pay. I love the way 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it. Listen to this. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. For our sake, God made Jesus, who was perfect, who knew no sin, to take on our sin, so that in him we could become perfect. And then look what it says. Right? Jesus literally took on the full weight of your sin. So listen, here's what it means. When you stand before God, in order for God to be just and righteous and holy, he cannot punish you for something that's already been paid for. All you have to do is receive it. This is the great exchange of the gospel because God is righteous and holy. He can have nothing to do with sin, right? But because God is loving and kind, he put all the weight of the sin on himself. And he took the punishment that you and I deserve so that we would never have to stand before him. Unrighteous. Listen, there is no other way to God except through Christ. But the most loving thing happened. Jesus Christ put on flesh and lived the life you could never live and died the death you deserve to die so that you could have his righteousness. 
So Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that is why there's salvation in no other name except his. And that's what takes people off, right? Again, think about it. Logically speaking, there has never, ever, ever been another perfect human being to ever live but Christ. And that perfect human being took on the punishment that you deserve so that you could stand before him. That's why there's power in his name. Listen to me, the name of Jesus is the most powerful name that's ever existed because that name actually has the ability to heal you. Right, it was the name of Jesus that healed the paralyzed man. It was the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus that can heal you too. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same one that lives in us. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, it might be offensive, but hear me whenever I say this, it is the most inclusive, exclusive claim ever. Here's what I'm saying. Look, at the foot of the cross, there is no distinction between anybody in this room, whether or not you come from privilege or not, whether or not you come from money or not, whether or not you're white or you're black or you're Asian or you're Latino, you fill in the blank. At the foot of the cross, we are all sinners damned but God. But God stood in our place. God did what you can never do. God sets the captives free. God gave you the ability to be free in Jesus. So there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved because there's no other name that has the power to save you because nobody else stood in your place and could take the punishment for you. I told you this last week, it's repeating. Here's the beauty of taking Jesus' name. It's like a marriage. You know, when my wife and I got married, uh, a few years ago, and what she ended up doing is we got on an altar, and she looked at me, and she walked off that altar with my name, right? In that moment, she was no longer